All right, we've got two sermons left in the Gospel of Mark. We're almost to the end. Today we cover the Jesus' death. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies. Next week we cover Jesus' resurrection. And if you think about it, it's, it kind of feels anticlimactic getting to this point. Um, after having preached and, and gone through all of Mark. And, and not just because Jesus dies. We, we, we know that. We've known that. But because we've talked about his death in some way every week. Right? We, we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is central to um, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, that he's more than a great teacher or a great example, but that salvation is found in him because of his death and resurrection. And uh, we, we need that. that. That is absolutely central. And we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is even more than that. But what God has been doing from the very beginning is, is, is the very focal point of all that God has been doing from the beginning of creation. That's what we mean by being gospel-centered. So we've, we talk about this every week. So getting here to the actual narrative of it feels a little anticlimactic. Um, furthermore, it's a little bit anticlimactic because as you read the narrative of Jesus' death, it doesn't really get into the significance and explanation and the meaning of it all that much. The gospel accounts are, are narratives. They're, they're mainly concerned with telling us what happened. Um, Certainly there's purpose to why they are compiled in the way they are and all of this, but uh, they're narratives. They're telling us what happened. They're not as much telling us why. The rest of the New Testament helps us out with that quite a bit, and it tells us a ton about Jesus' death. You can make an argument that Jesus' death is actually the subject of the rest, rest of, of the, the New Testament to, to some degree. Um, but here in the Gospels, we're mostly told, here's what happened. So what do we do with this text? What is there for us to kind of latch on to, hold on to, turn around, look at from all of every different angle? Well, sometimes the approach is taken that uh, we should focus on the, the intensity of Jesus' sufferings. Uh, the, the intensity of his beatings, scourging, as we'll see today, um, his mock, being mocked and spit upon, and, and the the, the intensity of death and suffering that Roman crucifixion was. As if Jesus' physical suffering and death has to be unprecedented for it to have real meaning. But the truth is, many people have suffered and died in very excruciating, painful ways, including on a cross. And so simply the horrific nature of this is, is not where most of the significance lies. Other people have suffered and died in excruciating ways. No, what makes this account so significant and so astounding is that this is happening to Jesus. Is who this is happening to. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, God in the flesh. In other words, we have to keep the identity of Jesus central, which is what we've been doing this entire time, which is what Mark Mark's purpose in writing this gospel is, is to present Jesus and to force us to ask, who is this? Who is this man? God. God-man. Jesus. And at this point, 
As we've spent a year and a half going through Mark, we have quite a bit to work on. We have quite a bit to formulate an answer to that question. And so before we actually read today's text, uh, we're going to be in Mark 15, verses 1 through 40, 41. Uh, before we do that, I want to turn our attention to a few snapshots from the Gospel of Mark um, so that we understand what is happening here a little bit better. We see it in context. We see it in light of who Jesus is. We can only understand his death when we understand who he is in the first place. Okay, so let me just give you a couple snapshots through the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins his Gospel um, stating his convictions about Jesus very clearly. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark says that this man, Jesus, is the long-promised Christ or Messiah, this kingly, exalted uh, figure who would come to save God's people. And then Mark immediately, this is still in chapter 1, Mark immediately um, starts talking about John the Baptist, and to do so, he quotes a couple uh, passages in the Old Testament that speak of this man who would be a messenger, who would prepare the way of the Lord, and as we saw way back in probably September of 2019, um, when you actually go to these Old Testament passages, they are, the one that they are speaking of, this messenger who would prepare the way, this person is preparing the way, is a messenger before God, Yahweh. Not just before this great human figure who many, you know, the Jews assumed the Christ and Messiah would be a great exalted human figure, but actually John is say, uh, Mark is saying right from the beginning that he's giving us these hints that this Jesus is more than just a great human savior, warrior, exalted one. He is actually God. And then, still in chapter 1, Jesus makes this bold, grand claim that is either the most egotistical and deluded thing anyone has ever said, or is true. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In essence, Jesus is saying, all that God has been doing from before time began, all of God's work throughout history, all of the his interactions with humanity, the, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, and the kings, and the prophets, and all of this stuff is all being coming to fulfillment now, and not just now, but in and through me. The time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. All of this is culminating in the presence of Jesus. And if you're witnessing this firsthand, you... You make a note of this. This is quite a, a grand claim. You also have Jesus' baptism, where a voice comes from heaven, uh, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. Uh, perhaps you've seen baptisms before. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you have never heard this at a baptism before. Again, if you're standing there, you're making a mental note, like something's, something's different. There's something, something with this man, Jesus. And then Jesus begins working miracles, but he works miracles in a different way than, than, than others. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to have to call on any outside power or, or pray diligently to, to some outside power, to, to God, to, to enact a miracle. He simply speaks. He says, says to the sick, be healed, and they're healed. He says to the, the wind and the waves, be still, 
and they are still. He says to evil spirits or demons, come out of him or her, and, and they come out. He has authority over the physical realm, over the spiritual realm, simply by speaking words. He, things happen, like God spoke at the beginning and the world came into creation. But even more than his miracles, Jesus' words and Jesus' claims really start to get people's attention. Uh, perhaps most significantly, at one point he claims to be able to forgive sins. He claims the right and authority to forgive sins and not sins just done against him, like somebody came up and punched him and he's like, I forgive you, but sins done against God, the Father. The whole thing about forgiveness is that you can't step in front of somebody else and forgive sins done against them, let alone step in front of God and forgive sins done against God. But this is what Jesus claims. Again, either he's deluded or he is actually God in the flesh and has this right and authority. And then jumping forward to where we've been the last couple of weeks in his last days, um, Jesus plainly tells the religious leaders that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they will see him seated at the right hand of God in power. Um, they understandably charge him with blasphemy, charge him for defaming God by saying that he, merely a man as they assumed, is on par with God. And this leads to his death. If you turn elsewhere in scripture and, and consider the identity of Jesus, we're told that Jesus was with God the Father at the very beginning and that all things that were made were made through him. And then we're told that at the name of Jesus, looking forward, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have this, this exalted picture that the Bible the biblical writings, the biblical authors are unified about, that Jesus himself is unified about, about the identity of Jesus as this a divine and eternal, as the divine and eternal God, as the one with all honor and authority and power and glory. And so consider what this means. This is no merely great teacher being put to death. Uh, you don't get condemned and put to death just merely for being a great teacher and saying some nice things. This is no merely impressive example of love and kindness and goodness being put to death. Again, those people aren't typically put to death. And this is no mere human Messiah or Christ, as many assumed, who's come from God and been sent by God and anointed by God and blessed by God, but at the, is at the end of the day merely a great human being. You're not called to worship human beings. No, this is God himself. The second person of the Trinity. This is the one who created all things, who, who knows all things, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, knows all of our days, sovereignly rules over the world, will one day come to judge the world and all will bow before him. This is who we are considering in considering Jesus and He's willingly walking towards his death. Uh, we, like, we like watching superhero movies. Um, and when you watch superhero movies, there are times when the, the superhero uh, gets caught um, or is captured by the authorities or the bad guys. 
and you, you wonder what's going to happen. Actually, you kind of already know what's going to happen. It, there's really only two things that ever happen. Either they're able to subdue the superhero and negate his powers, weaken him, perhaps temporarily, and so he has no choice but to go with them, or he's just waiting for the right moment to write, overpower them and, 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 and escape or destroy them. But here, Jesus has all of his powers intact. He can call on heaven to come and rescue him, but he doesn't use them. The one who calmed the wind and the waves doesn't calm this storm. The one who cast out demons doesn't, doesn't do anything to um, destroy and cast out and overcome these human enemies. The one who is the truth accepts the lies being spoken of him. The one who is perfect justice submits himself to the most unjust condemnation. He walks willingly towards his death, but with great purpose. Okay, so we're going to read our text. We're basically going to read it all together. I'll give a few, uh, just point out a few things as we go. Um, but as we do this, consider the identity of Jesus. Um, in every scene here, Jesus is the most powerful, most glorious, most authoritative individual. Um, God is in control. Not, not the religious leaders, not Pilate and the Romans, not the mobs, but Jesus. Okay, so Mark 15 Starting at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Um, so we saw last week the council here is like the Jewish Supreme Court. However, uh, the Jews are still under Roman rule. So this council has some authority over the Jews, but they don't have ultimate authority. And one of the things that they don't have the authority to do is execute people. So they, the Jewish council hands Jesus over to Pilate and the Romans in order to have him killed. Verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Um, a, a scourge is a Roman form of penalty whereby the prisoner is beat with a whip that's embedded with pieces of bone and metal. Um, the pain was so horrible that most, well, not most, but many prisoners didn't actually make it past this point, that that was enough to, to kill them. But again, the most wondrous thing to consider about this is not simply how ghastly and cruel the punishment it is, but that this is our creator God. Our creator God, giving himself to be humbled, to be an object of mockery, a condemned, seemingly helpless prisoner of the Romans. I mean, you don't make this stuff up. You don't make up a story like this. It continues, verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Jesus is mocked for apparently being able to save others, but not himself. Um, in Matthew's version of this, he is mocked for claiming to be the Son of God, and yet apparently God has forsaken him, given up on him. I mean, Jesus himself seems to give testimony to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're a Jew watching this at this moment, you are likely convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's certainly not anything greater than that. Despite all the incredible things he said and did, here he is dying. And, and not just dying a natural death, uh, condemned and dying at the hand of the Romans, condemned by both the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans. Um, I mean, the Messiah was expected to come and defeat the Romans, not be defeated by them. So all hope that seemed to exist in Jesus, these last few years at least, seemed to be gone in this moment. But then immediately there began to be signs that this was no ordinary ordeal. This was no ordinary man dying an ordinary death. And we see little hints of this in the last few verses we'll consider today. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this is from noon to three. Complete darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah, uh, the, the Aramic for God, which Jesus is saying here sounds similar to the Hebrew for Elijah. It's the likely explanation here. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain was, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. A couple more verses. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Uh, so the first hint that we get that something uh, different is, is going on here, that this is not just a normal death, is that the whole land becomes dark from, for three hours from noon to three. This is the, the most evil, the, the darkest hour in all of history, and n even nature bends to display that. Uh, Matthew's gospel records other miraculous events happening. There, uh, there is an earthquake at this time, and... Of course, that could be coincidental, but when you have a sovereign God, nothing is coincidental. Again, all of the natural elements are coming together to, to show the significance of this event. Uh, the tombs are opened, we are told, and miraculously many dead saints are raised to life. But the most significant hint that Mark gives us that, the, that, that uh, something else is going on here is that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, this was a 60-foot high, 30-foot-wide curtain that separated the most holy place in the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, um, separated off essentially God's presence from the people. Only the high priest could go within, behind the curtain once a year uh, to atone for the people's sins. And so Mark mentions this here, it's just kind of like a narrative uh, account, like this happened, but in hindsight, and then the rest of the New Testament helps us to understand that this was a proclamation, essentially, of the gospel. That in Jesus' death, the way into God's presence was opened up once for all um, through his blood, that his blood was an atoning sacrifice, the once and for all perfect sacrifice, um, and that sacrifices in the temple system and the, sac and, and, the, and the priests were no longer needed because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, priest and temple. Now, of course, there is one other element um, that reveals emphatically that this is not just another death, and that is what happens three days later when he is resurrected. But we are going to consider that next week. For now... We need to reflect a little bit on his death. What do we do with this? And for our purposes today, I want to hone in on what the cross reveals about both the justice of God and the love of God. On the one hand, the cross reveals the, the perfect and unwavering justice and holiness and righteousness of God and the, the depths of our sin the seriousness of our sin in, face, in the face of it. God cannot just overlook, excuse, minimize sin. And we can understand this uh, because we hate, though even though imperfectly, we hate evil. 
especially when it's done towards us. We don't always hate it so well when it's us, but we rightly understand how to hate evil is a good thing. When we see someone uh, mistreated, abused, uh, it, it arouses anger and, and cries for justice in us. But God hates evil perfectly. And so nothing less than the cross is necessary if a holy God is going to draw near to sinners. To forgive them and still maintain his perfect justice. Sometimes grace is, is spoken of and, and, and considered in ways that make it very cheap. Uh, cheap grace is just believing that God is only and ever loving and merciful and forgiving. And so the cross is not really necessary. It's a nice idea, but at the end of the day, it's not really necessary. Cheap grace says that we are not that bad, and of course God would forgive us. Cheap grace minimizes God's concern for justice and righteousness. Cheap grace allows us to be unchanged in our attitude towards sin. We like to sin, God likes to forgive. What a great partnership. And cheap grace ultimately doesn't lead us to worship or obedience or love. But true grace is costly, and the cross shows us in glaring terms the true cost of God's grace. Either we die separated from him and under his just punishment, or this happens. God steps in, and Jesus does this for us. John Stott writes, It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not to feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There these noxious weeds shrivel and die. If we look at the cross and still feel and still act apathetic, selfish, and complacent, we haven't truly beheld the cross yet. We haven't truly beheld Jesus on the cross. But we can't only consider God's justice and, our, and the evilness of our sin in this, uh, that in and of itself is, is almost, if not unbearable for us to, to consider. And so along with God's justice, we have to see God's love in the cross. And this is just as evident. It, the cross is just as much a proclamation of the love of God as it is the justice of God. This is the darkest and most evil day in history, and yet at the same time, it is also when God's love and glory and goodness is most displayed, clearly for us all to see. We don't only see what God's justice and our sin required, we also see what God's love was willing to do and desired to do. We don't only see the condemning conviction of our sin in the cross, but we see the freeing, joy-inducing, new identity solution of God's grace. Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we must always remind ourselves that when we're talking about grace, we're not just talking about a point of theology. We're talking about the loving heart of God. Jesus didn't die just for theological reasons. Theology matters. Bad theology hurts. But Jesus didn't ultimately die 
to, to figure out a piece of theology. He died out of love, for love, for joy, for glory. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8, God shows or demonstrates his love for us. His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Hebrews 12, 2, which I've probably quoted the last five weeks in a row. Who for the joy that was before him, the joy that was before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is truly a great and unimaginable salvation. So what do we do with it? What do we do with a God who accomplished such a great salvation? How do we respond rightly? Well, we trust in his finished work. It is finished, as Jesus Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished, and we trust that that is the case, that God has done the work for us, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no amount of getting ourselves put together, getting ourselves ready that we must do to come. There's no amount of feeling really bad for our sin to make us presentable before God, although we must confess. There's no amount of lining up our theology and Bible knowledge that we must do. There's no amount of working through all of our questions and doubts and and figuring out exactly what we believe or, or what is true. We, we simply come in faith to Jesus. We trust in the sufficiency of who he is and what he's done, of his person and work. He's done everything necessary. And then we spend our lives worshiping him for what he has done. Not out of guilt and fear, but out of love for him being a gracious and good and perfect and just God. Let's pray.